Okay, if you have a Bible, can you turn with me to Judges chapter 11? Judges chapter 11. Um, if you're, you've not been with us um, for a little while or you're visiting us, we've been looking at the book of Judges um, over the last few weeks. And when we started it, one of the things I said that we do when we start to read the Bible together is we're looking for what God's up to. But the other thing is often we're looking and seeing ourselves in almost like a mirror. We're beginning to imagine ourselves there. I was reading through Judges for my own sort of, my own devotions, my own Bible study, um, much earlier in the year. And it was when I got to this chapter, this was the chapter that for me sort of became the, the, the switch to say, I think I'd like to preach on the whole book. This was the chapter that I began to see or understand how the book of Judges could work in as much as allowing us to see ourselves there. And uh, maybe it was me. Maybe I saw myself there uh, more than you might, but I certainly, it was this chapter that did that trick for me. What I want to do today is talk about um, the power of the tongue. Because I think that the story we're going to look at is all about the words we use, the power of the tongue. You and I both know how, what an incredible gift words can be to us. Words create new, new realities. When someone says, I will, or I do, a whole new world is beginning. When someone says, I love you, for the very first time, a whole new possibility opens up. When someone says to you something as simple as, I was thinking of you and praying for you today, suddenly you kind of know you're not on your own. When someone says to you, you came just at the right time, it makes you feel, oh, maybe God does use me. Words create whole new possibilities. And you know the incredible damage that words can do. I don't love you anymore. I wish I'd never met you. I'm leaving. It's over. A new reality is created, but not one that you would ever wanted to be part of. These words that create and these words that destroy. But there's more than that, isn't there? It's kind of like sometimes it's the search for the right word. Or the fear of losing words. And uh, I don't know if I'm the only person in the room that as you keep waking up every morning, words tend to disappear. You're thinking, it's, um, um, um. And you kind of, I frighten myself then. Because I think five years ago, I wouldn't have had to go, um, um. And the dreaded A word becomes... Age. Yeah, it's not that word I was thinking of, actually. It's Alzheimer's. <laughs> Couldn't remember it. It's Alzheimer's. Um, but that dreaded A word that lingers over so many of us as we get older, beginning to think, what if I can't find the words or the name? I know who you are, Pauline. Just needed a moment. So you know 
You and I both know the power of the words, you know the damage of the words, you know the significance of the words, you know the fear of losing them. And here we are, we're going to read a story together of a man whose life, I think, was dominated by the use of the language. Now, it's a story that um, you probably won't know so well. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read most of it, um, but I'm going to comment on it as we go along um, so that we can understand, hopefully, what's going on. And then I'm going to ask some questions about, actually, so what does this mean for the way we use words? I did a thing on Friday um, as I was preparing and uh, put it out beyond our, uh, on our Facebook group to ask, well, what have you found about wisdom about words? And this is what some of you wrote. Steve uh, said, once a word is spoken, you can never pull it back. It's out there. Erin said, I think social media causes people or should cause people to think more about what they say. Photos they show, etc. As once posted, they're out there forever. It's not only about hurting others, it's about how you present or represent yourself. That's a kind of a frightening thought, isn't it? You know, the idea that somewhere online your words are captured and will be there forever. Susie said, one negative word can cancel out many positive words. It's always the negatives that are easiest to remember. Claire, that words once spoken are set alight and that the flame can be sometimes be hard to put out. Even when the flame is put out, the damage caused may last a lifetime. Gareth, sometimes not saying anything can be as damaging. And then Morag, how you speak, what you say, when you say it, can show and shape your character. Like thoughts, I suppose. These some of the thoughts that you had. Let's look at the story together. We're going to start at uh, the beginning of chapter 11. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. And his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. You've had this sort of kind of story before, if you remember, when we talked about Abimelech last week. A guy who was born in difficult circumstances and rejected. But for Abimelech, that, what that meant for him was he went after power for Jephthah. Well, he gets rejected and he gets rejected by words. You don't belong here. You're not one of us. You've got to go. And so Jephthah leaves the family situation and he goes and he surrounds himself with these reckless scoundrels. These people who just gather around. He had a gang. This is a young guy who's cast out from his family and he goes to a distant uh, uh, area of the country and he has a gang because he's been directly rejected. And it's the words that create the reality. What happens to him? Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. And Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we're turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you'll be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The, Gilead, the elders of Gilead replied, 
The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. Get this. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. The sheer cheek of, the, of, this, of these people. They've seen this. They've got rid of this young man and he's gone out and he's got a gang. And then they get into trouble and they go, would you come back and fight with us, for us? Would you lead us? And the sheer cheek of the people of Gilead. And so Gilead comes and goes, uh, and Jephthah says, you didn't want me before, did you? And they're, no, 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 but we want you now. And so Jephthah negotiates an agreement with them. It's a definite agreement. If I come back, Will I really be able to lead you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If the Lord gives us victory, will you be still true to your promise? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then you got that little last phrase, and Jephthah went and he, um, what's the word? (laughs) A little phrase. He repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. And that little phrase has caught my attention. Just that idea of, I'm going I'm to speak out to God again. I'm just going to tell God exactly what's gone on here. I'm telling God exactly what has been done to me. I'm telling God exactly what has been said to me. Because I want the Lord on my side. And then you have him then. So as the leader, then Jephthah, verse 12, then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against me that you've attacked my country? And the king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, when Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. And Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king. Now, the the letter that he sends and all the instructions he gives is quite a long, involved piece. I'm not going to read right now, but essentially what was going on was he says to them, it's kind of interesting, the first thing he does is not attack the Ammonites. The first thing he goes and says, why have we got a problem here? I, I see Jephthah as this guy who, despite this awful start in life, son of a prostitute, cast out from his family, living in a, with a gang, comes back and he's not just out for power at all costs. I see him using his language really well. He did it with his own people. And now he tries to do it with his enemy. He tries to be the diplomat. Why, why should we fight? And they say, well, actually, it's historical. That's the answer. It's like most conflict. It's historical. And what Jephthah does in the long piece that we're not going to read, he outlines the history and he says, let me tell you the history and let me tell you what that means and tell me, let me tell you what God was doing. But as often happens, it was for no good. In verse 28, if you read down, so past that, the king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message that Jephthah sent him. Let's read the next bit. And the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. So he's taking on the enemy now. 
And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I'll sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Jephthah went out to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands. And he devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Minith as far as Abel, Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. And when Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you've brought me down and I'm devastated. I've made a vow to the Lord I can't break. My father, she replied, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you promised now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I'll never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. And after the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he'd vowed. And she was a virgin. And from this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Now, he was, he was successful with his brothers. He was less successful with the Ammonites. At this point, he just makes a dangerous vow. So just in case you didn't catch what was going on, let me just make it absolutely abundantly clear. He says to God, God, if you give me success, when I get back, whatever comes through my door, I'll sacrifice to you as a burnt offering. Now, I don't know what he was expecting, It sounds like he was expecting an animal, a goat, something like that, that he would offer as a burnt offering. But when he gets home, the first thing that comes out of his door is his daughter. And then he says to her, this is the bit I can't get. You've brought me down. And I'm devastated. Suddenly it's her fault. Oh, Jephthah. Why did, you, why did you make that vow in the first place? Why did you think God would hear that? Why did you think that the God you worship is the God who can be bought by your promise? What sort of deal do you think you've got with God? It's kind of like, oh, Jephthah. And then, when it's your daughter, why didn't you say, no, I'm not going to keep the vow? Why didn't you say, this is not what I meant? I didn't mean you. I don't know whether... Many of us are ever very far away from superstitious religion. I think this is what's going on here. Uh, Am I I the only person that actually in their own past, I mean, obviously a long, long time ago, not at all ever recently, has ever said, God, if you do, I will. Am I the only person that's ever done that? Am I the only person that said, God, if you would just come through on this for me, I will. I'll give this. 
And for me, that sounded really spiritual. <laughs> for him, it's just stupid. But for me, it sounded really spiritual. It sounded as though this was something that I could really offer to God, and this would be something God would be really pleased with. And I read it, and I see here the extreme situation of this actually being played out in someone's life. And I'm asking myself, Jephthah, why did you think that's how God worked? And then I've got to hear myself say to myself, Neil, what did you think God was like? Do you think God only does this for you when you promise that? When that is such a little thing? Do you think that's how God actually works, Neil? Well, listen to some of my prayers and you might begin to imagine I have done. As though somehow I can make God do stuff. As though somehow my small, my small sacrifices, my desires, my intentions somehow twist the arm of God. I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes that's been because I've been desperate. And I think God understands desperation. But I don't think he needs your small sacrifice for him to work. Jeff, why did you make this big vow, this dangerous vow? Well, because the pagan culture around was doing it all the time. This was not unusual, by the way, that actually fathers would sacrifice children to get gods to do what they wanted them to do. You simply haven't understood Jehovah. Why didn't you break the vow you made? Even the daughter says, yeah, you've said it, Dad. That's the end. Because I never understood, Jephthah might say, that God's a God of grace. I see it. I see it myself. I see it in those careless vows. And I see it in people who put career before marriage, priorities before their children, and those in church ministry who put their church ministry before their home life. I'll do this for you, God, and I'll sacrifice everything else. If you only give me success. A dangerous vow. You've got him being really good with his own family. You've got him being desiring to be a diplomat with the enemy. And now he's made a disastrous vow. But he's successful. And then how does this story finish? Well, the final word is a divisive word. The Ephraimites, uh, chapter 12, the Ephraimite forces were called out and they crossed over to Zaphon and they said to Jephthah, why did you go out to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn your house over your head. <laughs> Seems a, a little overreaction to not going to war. You didn't ask us to go to war with you. Why not? We're going to burn you down. And Jethro answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites. And though I called, you didn't save me out of their hands. And when I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands and I crossed over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now, why have you come up today to fight me? And Jephthah called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. They're just fighting over their own history. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the Gileadites asked him, are you an Ephraimite? And if he replied, no, they said, all right, say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, because he couldn't pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. And 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Jephthah led Israel for six years. And then he was, died and was buried in a town in Gilead. 
kind of a strange little story to end with, isn't it? But again, it's about words. So here, what you've got going on, you've got a, a civil war. And uh, essentially, Jephthah is now leading a civil war. He's fighting back. And how do you decide who your enemy is? How do they speak? So they get to the ford. If, if the, the enemy, your civil war enemy, your family, your clan, your people, but if they can't speak like you speak, you kill them. Shibboleth. Can you say shibboleth? And if you can't say it and you end up saying Sibboleth, uh, you're not one of us. In the United Kingdom, there are parts of the United Kingdom where the way you say certain words still marks you out. You're not one of us. You're not one of us. And it's got a long history. So Jephthah, this silver-tongued man, really, directly rejected, has a definite agreement, a diplomatic answer, a dangerous vow, and a divisive word. It's all a story about words, I think, and language. I think the narrator's done a really interesting job about the power of your speech. And it got me to thinking, so how do we make sense of our words? And uh, along with the wisdom that you shared earlier, I've got four things I want to say. And in saying them, I, I went to Proverbs, and I started to look through Proverbs, and it reminded me, I've not probably read through Proverbs for ages, really, as a whole. But you go back to Proverbs, and so much of Proverbs is about your speech. The things you say, and the way you say them. So four things, almost at random. Firstly, words matter. It's not what you mean, it's what you say. How many of you have been in a situation where someone said, you said, and you end up saying, I didn't mean that? To be honest, it's not what you mean. It is actually what you say. How will people know what you mean except in the words you say? Words are, are precious and they're fragile and they're difficult, but actually it's not what you mean, it's what you say. Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free from perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Practice truth. It's not what you mean, it's what you say. Secondly, and Gareth was right when he said sometimes not speaking is as difficult. Because actually, if you, some, some of you, all right, when, we, when you argue with people, and uh, some of us, the way we deal with it is, okay, let me be more personal. The way I deal with it is I've just got to get it all out. Some people, though, go silent. Yeah? Some of you silent types? You're not saying. But you wouldn't, would you? Um, <laughs> but you're the silent type. You can, you, you've, got, you've, got, you've made silence into an artwork. All right? You can go silent for days. Or just begrudgingly silent. And... Um, but sometimes, silence is an option. Fools show their annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook an insult. An honest witness tells the truth, but a false witness tells lies. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue lasts only a moment. Sometimes you know you don't have to say everything that's in your head. 
And the older I get, the more I believe that. That actually, a smidgen of self-control can save days and weeks and months of heartache. You don't need to say everything that you're thinking. Silence is an option. And I suggest that for some of us who speak a lot, silence is probably a better option to take more times. You that never say hardly anything, I'm not talking to you, all right? <laughs> this is the fourth thing I was thinking about. Talking is not a competition. I didn't really mean talking. I mean, but you know, conversations are not a competition. I think that's probably a better. You know, sometimes we've got, and again, maybe it's when you're younger, but you think every conversation you're in is a battle you've got to win. And I don't mean with strangers. We're polite with us. I mean with the people we live with. Every conversation is not a battle, and you don't have to win every time. A gentle answer does turn away wrath. A harsh word does stir up anger. And then finally, your words create a view of reality. I think the way we speak about one another and to one another creates a view of reality. If I say to Gemma, you'll never believe what Pat's just done. Two things will happen. Gemma will be very interested to hear what <laughs> Pat's just done. And uh, essentially, I'm just trying to find an ally because I'm annoyed with Pat. And so I talk to Gemma and I say, Gemma, you wouldn't believe, but I can't, I'm not imaginative enough to, to, to do the next bit. Or I am, but I don't want to have to say Sorry. <laughs> So I tell you exactly what Pat has done. And you go, oh, well, that's terrible. I never thought she was like that. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> remarkable, isn't it? We could do this. Um, and the, do you know what will happen next time? The next time Gemma sees Pat, the stain of what I've told her will linger. And she won't see Pat in the same way as she saw her before because the stain of what I've told her will shadow her dealings with her. And all Pat needs to do next time is something that's just a little out of character, and Gemma will go, see, Neil's right. And it'll be a small thing, but Gemma... And, and, and so what I've done is I've created a view of reality about someone else, and it's my careless, my careless, my careless words. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So what's the problem? The problem is not actually my mouth. My problem is my heart. What was the problem with Jephthah? It wasn't really so much that he was good with words and then he made stupid, he said stupid things and then he was divisive. It was actually his heart. Jesus said, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. It's your heart, my heart, that's the problem. And I know that just from day-to-day -day stuff. Do you know when you're in a bad mood and you don't know why? Am I, again, you're not giving me much away this morning. You're thinking, no, we don't know what that means. We have no idea. You know, I met someone, I met someone once who said to me, I said, how are you doing? She said, I'm in a really bad mood. I'm looking for a hook to hang it on. It's like you don't know why you're so out of sorts, but you're looking for something, and you'll just hang it on something. And... Um, 
and you say things, and I say things that you're shocked by. And it's no one else's fault. It's my heart is that I killed her. Jephthah, when I read the story of Jephthah, I saw a man who was good with his tongue, good with words, a man who'd overcome a really difficult past, but he'd done it by his mouth. Smart guy, but then his mouth got him into trouble. And he blames other people. He blames his daughter. It's your fault that I made that stupid vow. No, it's not, Jephthah. It's your fault. It was your speech. It was your language. 42,000 people lie dead by a stream. Jephthah, it's your fault. You, you said, if you don't speak like us, you don't belong to us. Jephthah, it's your heart. So when the psalmist writes, and with this I'll finish, when the psalmist writes, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. We sing it, and we probably will sing it, but it's not a church thing. It's a life thing. Lulu, will you come back and play the piano for me? It's been great this morning to have some different... Yeah, that's fine. Some different folks playing with us this morning. It's been fantastic. We're going to try to do something in a moment. Just while Lulu's playing, we're not going to be singing at the moment, but I just wanted to play. And I want to give you time, just where you are, just to own up to the words that have damaged. Can we turn it down a little bit, Phil, so it's not quite so loud? Father God, I want to pray for us all, because there's not one of us in the room that this doesn't apply to. we say it's when we're busy or when we're stressed or when we're tired but Lord at the end of the day it's our heart that needs attendance and Lord we want to ask forgiveness from you for the times when we've tried to manipulate you by getting you on our side by saying if you do this I'll do that Lord forgive us for that Thank you, you're not a God like that. You don't do deals like that. And Lord, sorry for the times when we've damaged one another, where our careless words have lodged in people's hearts. Lord, we're sorry for the damage we've done. And Lord, we don't want to blame anybody else or make any other excuses except to say we did it and we're sorry. And Lord, for the people amongst us this morning for whom they're carrying the wounds of words that have damaged them in the past, Lord, would you bring your healing? The words that said you don't belong here, the words that says you're not one of us, 
the words that said, you're not like us. We don't want you. Lord, would you bring your healing into our hearts, we pray. Touch our mouths and our lips, but touch our hearts more. do something in a moment if you will um, that was really nice you can carry on playing it was very good yeah. your piano playing's coming on really well it's really <laughs> this, this working at Chatham's paying off it's uh, very good <laughs> yeah just play that's really helpful so this is what I'm going to do um, if you will I want you to um, think about one of the people on a side that's sitting with you or close to you. And um, while Lulu is playing, although she's clearly gone on strike right now, but she will play in a moment, I'm sure. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> um, I want you to ask, God, what, what would Jesus say to the person next to me? Now, here's the rules. No prophecies about marriages, all right, or relationships, or directive words about where you ought to move to next. None of that sort of stuff. But it's the stuff that says, well, actually, what would God want this person to know? Now, for some of you, you're going to go, oh, I need to go to the toilet. <laughs> Get me out of here. But actually, all you're doing is doing what you do for yourself saying, God, what do I need to hear? But you're asking it for someone else. You might not know them really well at all, in which case you're just saying, look, I was praying for you, and this is what I'm thinking. All right, you don't have to pray out loud. You're saying, just pray for them for a moment or two, and then just say, this is what I want to say. Now, you might be sitting with someone who you don't know at all, and you might know someone else in the church better, and you might want to move towards the person you do know that might be easier to be honest sometimes I find it harder with people I know really well actually because when I'm with someone I don't know at all there's, like, there's no other filters going on it's kind of like all I'm doing is saying I'm, this is what I'm thinking this is what I'm thinking God would want you to know so I actually find it easier with people I don't know than with people I do know if you don't want to do it there's no pressure and no one's going to worry but what I'd like you to do, just for a moment, let's just start, see if we can do this. Just tap one person and say, I'm, I'm going to be praying for you. <laughs> right. That's if you're going to do it, just tell them who you, who's doing it with you. All right. Otherwise, this is never going to work, is it? All right. So tell them now. If you're going to do it, tell them. <laughs> All right. If you're going to do it, tell them who you're doing it. And all you're going to do all you're going to do is you, we're just going to take a moment or two of stillness where you're going to ask God God what do what would you want to remind this person of this is not heavy this is not designed to be life changing 
This is not speaking into their deepest, deepest, darkest secrets. It's simply saying, I want to tell you, when I was, you know, and you might want to say it somewhat like this. While I was asking God, this is what I felt he wanted you to know. You might just want to remind them about some central truths about how God feels about them. Or it might be something more specific. Just let's take a moment and be still. And begin to pray for the person that you're with. That's the first thing. Just ask God to bless them. as you're asking that then just be open to the things that you think Jesus might want to say to that person the worst that's going to happen at this point is that you're going to be encouraged by someone else that's the worst that's going to happen so you're in a really safe place and when you think you've got something for them then just start to whisper it to them so they can hear it and tell them. You might just want to tell them what you prayed for. Or you might want to tell them what you think God might want to remind them of.